0: Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Stay tuned to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, as we sit down with Dr. Sean Lucas to discuss pastoral struggles and the Christian ministry. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is the second episode. This week I have my uh, assistant, if you want to call him that. Now if Josh listens to this program, he's bound to uh, get a little squeamish when I say that word, assistant. But anyway, you know what I mean. This is the man who actually schedules my uh, guests for the program. He has doubled me up this week because next week we will not be having our regularly scheduled Uh, program because it is finals week at Greenville Seminary, and as many students here, I have finals to take, and so I can't devote the time necessary to do this. So just a quick programming announcement for those who listen faithfully to this program. We will not be having a Confessing Our Hope podcast next week. In place of that, we will be releasing this broadcast. So you're listening to this broadcast, and you're thinking, well, gee, why did you just tell us all that? Well, I don't know. You'll figure it out. But anyway, this is broadcast number 11, May 9th, 2012. I am your host, William Hill. And as I said, this is the weekly podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. If you're looking for more information about the seminary, you can visit us at gpts.edu. And if you want to write me with whatever, nice things, bad things, you choose, you can write me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu. And I do the best I can to respond to every email. So please write and I will get right back to you as the Lord enables me to do so. Today we have a very interesting discussion, one that I do not – I can't honestly remember – doing in the past in the five years that I did a different podcast. I don't remember ever hearing a discussion on this subject before. I'm sure it's been done. But today we'll be talking with Dr. Sean Lucas and he is um, going to be on to talk about the struggles of pastoral ministry and what that actually means. Now we we know the pastoral ministry has struggles. It, it just does. That's just the reality of it. But we're going to be talking about the struggles of being a pastor and how to deal with various aspects of that, specific things, not just in a general sense. So we'll be talking with him. He he is a graduate of Bob Jones University, which is right here in the great city of Greenville, South Carolina, and he has his Ph.D. from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Currently, he is the senior minister of First Presbyterian Church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. So, Dr. Lucas, it's great to have you on the program, and I look forward to this discussion, especially since... I'm training to do what you are currently doing. And I'm sure um, those things, sadly, will come up at some point. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Great, Dr. Lucas. Just a a quick general question, when we talk about pastoral struggles, um, Christian struggle in general with all sorts of things, what is unique to, when we talk about a pastoral struggles or struggling as a pastor uh, with various issues, what makes that different? Than just a typical struggle as a Christian.
1: I think one of the things that Second Corinthians pictures for us is that the way Paul talks about his struggles, he he very much is a, a representative kind of figure uh, as he as he undergoes suffering and difficulty, and as he receives the Lord's comfort. It's not just for himself, although it is for himself, but it's also for for the people as well. And so there's this this strange. Kind of peculiar covenantal symbiosis, if you will.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: God is put together when pastor and people are connected together. When people suffer, um, the pastor suffers, and, and vice versa. When the pastor suffers, there's there's struggle for the people as well. And so, uh, it's it's and, and it's I'd have to say too, it's different being the senior pastor as opposed to being on a pastoral staff. I, I serve two other churches and one in Kentucky, and one in Missouri on pastoral staffs, and it, it is a lot different being the senior minister. In terms of how you kind of feel the, the the anxiety for all the churches, as Paul talks about it in Second Corinthians, it, it's a different deal.
0: Hmm. Now, when we talk about uh, struggles, I mean, as being a pastor, um, you have the responsibility to govern your own Christian experience and your own walk. But then, at the on the other hand, as an under shepherd, you have a responsibility um, giving you to by virtue of your call to the office, to shepherd the souls of other people, and so when you see other people struggling and with various things, and we're going to get into some of those specific things, how does that um, how does that impact your own personal spiritual life? Well, and how exa- do you balance that?
1: <laughs> it's exhausting. I mean, it's just for me. Uh, other guys may have a bigger emotional tank, I guess. I don't know, but for me, I, I feel as though um because pastoral care involves the extension of oneself into the life of another you know in, in certainly in gospel ways and yet you know that your heart is with that other um you know it, it's emotionally draining and uh, mm-hmm. and so you know that there, there is a I, I have a friend who pastors a, a first church in the south and um and when we used when I was Working and teaching at, at a seminary in the Midwest, um, I would get with him and I'd say, "How you doing?" And it would be April, May. He says, "I'm exhausted," and I was always like, "Really?" You know, but but now I get it. <laughs> I understand. Yeah, you know, particularly the way he did his vacation. He was holding on till the vacation simply because. The, as you extend your life into the lives of others as they hurt and as they sin and as they struggle and as they weep for their children and as they rejoice over newborns and all the happy and sad that goes on in the life of a congregation, I mean, emotionally, it's exhausting. And so, you know, that that necessarily has spiritual effects.
0: You mentioned an interesting aspect. Um, you talked about you have this friend and you guys were clearly talking about um, things that were important to both of you, um, how important is it for pastors to have other pastors um, in close connection with one another, that close accountability, that close friendship? Because it seems to me that while pastors certainly can have friends that aren't in the ministry, and they should, but there's a certain aspect of being in the ministry that pastor only pastors can really understand, that emotional mm-hmm. aspect. And how important is that for pastors to develop those kinds of relationships because of this issue?
1: Oh, it's hugely important. I mean, the Lord has been very kind to me in that I, uh, the church I serve we have a, a pastoral staff a, a four ordained and then two non-ordained folks, and so the six of us are pretty closely connected. We have weekly staff meeting, but it's I, I don't even though I'm head of staff, if you will. Um, it's more of a circle than a hierarchy. If you mm-hmm. I'm the quarterback, if you will. I don't mm-hmm. know kind of the right metaphor, but so I'm part of a team. Obviously, you know, there's an element where if decisions are made, I make them, but, but we share our lives together and we share the ministry together. And so, uh, in a lot of ways, when there's, when there's difficulty and struggle in the life of the congregation, I'm blessed by the fact that I, I bear that together with them. I mean, also key is my session. I've got uh, 15 other elders on our session, and uh, so we're a large session. And uh, to be able to, you know, to go to lunch with those guys and bear it, I, I always feel better, both emotionally, spiritually, and also, I guess, pastorally, when, when I'm able to get to a session meeting, we have our session meetings once a month, and uh, to get into a session, meeting, go into executive session and say, guys, I need to let you know this is going on. I need you to be aware. We need to put together a commission, whatever it is, pray. And, and then we always pray about it. We spend a significant amount of time praying about it. that. For me, it takes the, the burden off and, sh- and distributes it <laughs> with the other elders. But then outside the congregation, um, having friendships. And since I've been in Mississippi, uh, I've tried to be intentional and mm-hmm. develop friendships with other, other guys, um, uh, guys who are pastors in other cities. Unfortunately, uh, Hattiesburg's 90 miles from everywhere. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you have to go a ways for a friendship, either to Jackson or, you know, to, I meet a friend of mine in Meridian, or I'll go down to Gulfport and hang out with, with guys. And, uh, and that's mutually encouraging as well, uh, because we can kind of speak into one another's lives in an important ways. So,
0: Yeah, it does. It it does seem to me, um, I I remember uh, when I was at a church in Virginia and um, the session was talking to me about potentially going to seminary and pursuing the pastoral office. Um, One of the questions, one of the conversations that we had, the session had with me was, you know, how would I respond to situations in the church of, of a difficult nature um, how would I, resp- uh, how would I handle that? How would I deal with that as a pastor? And I said, well, you know, this is one of the things I love about being Presbyterian. I said, I don't have to have all the answers. I said, if I'm struggling with a matter with one of the people, with one of my members in the church and, and I want to give them the best care, I want to give them the best counsel. I want to, I want to help them grow. If I don't have the answers, I have a session I can go to mm-hmm. and I can sit down and say, brothers, look, um, I have absolutely no idea what to say. I don't. I really don't know how to proceed. I think maybe we should go this way. What do you guys think? Yeah. And we can collectively look, seek the Lord's wisdom on those matters. Because the, of course, the goal in those kinds of things is, is for the for the edification of the member to help them grow, to help them work through those struggles, and to deal with it. And as you said, I think the other side, the positive side of that is that. I don't have to carry the whole load. I don't. Right. I, the ball doesn't all. The, the world doesn't rest completely on my shoulders. It doesn't yeah. even rest on my shoulders at all. Right. Um, do you think there's a, a sense in the pastoral ministry, in a general sense, where pastors, whether they're Presbyterian or otherwise, so, some uh, take somewhat of an attitude, or maybe default back to a mentality that says it all ends here. It all de- depends on me. It, it's yeah, you know.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's the case. Um, and there, and truth be told, I mean, the the, the blessing of Presbyterian polity is that uh, it's the, all of us elders together doing the ministry. That said, there is something unique about sitting in this seat. Um, and so it's this weird kind of symbiosis of um, because, you know, in part because I've been set apart to this full time. I mean, this is You know, this is my life in the way it's not uh, my ruling elder who's a a doctor, or my ruling elder who's a lawyer, or whatever. You know, uh, this this really uh, I've been separated to this life, and so there is a sense in which um, I probably bear it more. Mm -hmm. um, But but to be able to know that I'm sharing it together, uh, and that and that is a place where the gospel has to come to bear because uh, at the end of the day, even I mean. Even as I share this ministry with our elders, or if I bear it myself, ministry always happens in the context of union with Christ. And so in a very real sense, as you said, um, I'm participating in his ministry. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm participating in, in his burdens, in his suffering for his people. Uh, yeah, it's so there's a very real sense in which, um, as Paul talks about learning the fellowship of his sufferings, I think Paul talking in Philippians 3 specifically, uniquely about ministry there uh, and the ministry that he knows having given up uh, his prior ministry as a Pharisee in order to gain Christ and to have a sense of suffering and resurrection together and the ultimate upward call of the resurrection the last day. So
0: mm, That's good. Now... Uh, when we're, when we're th- thinking through the subject of, I mean, I, for lack of a better way of explaining it, we've off air talked about, well, we can call this pastoral struggles or whatever the case may be, but it sort of has a double edged approach, a double edged approach in the sense that, and I, I touched on this just a little bit earlier, where your struggles in some way as a pastor are connected with the struggles of the congregation, but. Mm-hmm. But some struggles have greater impact on pastors than others. Oh yeah. Um, I'm familiar, um, as you are, with a a congregation that um, in the last year um, had two two different suicides Mm -hmm. in the congregation, um, where the 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 pastoral staff, everybody feels that the the membership feel it, but the pastors it seems feel it even more so and how that affects them personally as well as pastorally um, and i don't want to make the imp- give the impression that we sort of pastors are sort of divided people like you know one day we're pastors and the next day we're not or we have different hats and we put them on all the time because i'm sure you would agree that when you're a pastor you're a pastor i mean it's a 24-hour mm-hmm. day job it mm-hmm. never seems it never ends you don't ever punch out you never punch in um, how as a pastor in in your current status right now how do you deal with those heavy issues those kinds of issues that not only impact you personally but also come to bear on the congregation even if they're not intimately linked with the person that's directly involved yeah because it's well, certainly I mean, a burden
1: this past year we've done um as a church we've had 13 funerals since December we've had four major funerals in the sense of um Typically, when when it's there's someone who's significant in the life of the congregation, those are my funerals. I've got a wonderful pastor to senior adults who handles a number of our funerals. He's a former funeral director. He does a wonderful job. Um, but for those big funerals, I tend to because I've been caring for these folks all along. So, for example, we had. Um, the wife of an elder, uh, she died when, uh, in March, she was 51. She had stage four pancreatic cancer. We walked with them for over a year uh, until she died. And then two weeks later, um, the husband of, of one of our members died of stage four colon cancer. He was 58 years old, walked with him for, uh, since he was diagnosed, it Mm. was nine months. Um, and, and, and that was on the heel of two other large funerals. And, um, I know for myself. I mean, those are just um, just incredibly um, difficult. Uh, they're wonderful opportunities to preach the gospel, certainly. And um, for me, the resurrection of Jesus um, over this past year has. Uh, I don't know how to say it otherwise in this has ceased to be kind of an Easter only thing or mm-hmm. thing for our, theolo- you know, like a Dick Gaffin, you know, redemption, resurrection, you know, like an idea in a book, but actually has been a ballast for my soul in trying to help people. And as well as dealing with my own heart
0: through some of their, their tears and griefs. Uh, and then we- Well, let me, let me ask, let me interrupt you right there. Yeah. I don't mean to um, interrupt, but um, how does the subject, of the resurrection of christ bring that comfort and i know for you and me that's an academic it would seem like an academic question but i'm asking that question with a view of people listening and they hear you say that yeah how does that impact a person's understanding in dealing with these kinds of crisis these kinds of struggles whether they're a pastor mm-hmm. or whether they're just sitting in the pew week after week and they have a loved one that 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 passes away, or they have a loved one that's terminally ill, or whatever the case may be.
1: Well, the Christian hope is grounded in the resurrection. I mean, that mm. that is the hope. Um, I mean, in our evangelical culture, we, we've tended to talk about going to heaven when we die, and certainly one of the blessed promises is to be absent with the body, to absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. But but that's not Paul's ultimate hope. Uh, and you, I mean, you can go back to to theologians like. Gerhardus Voss, to find you know who makes this very plain. Paul's ultimate hope is the resurrection. That that's where the whole story of the Bible is going. The resurrection of the body, new heavens, new earth, new creation, and so the regeneration that believers experience now. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5:17, we're we're new creations. We're signs of what the new heavens new earth is going to look like. That's where our entire lives are driving towards, and. And so the resurrection is what ultimately gives us hope that that death doesn't win, sin doesn't win, sickness doesn't win, sorrow doesn't win. How do we know? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And because Jesus has been raised from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection, we too trust that we shall be raised. And that means that death doesn't win. Uh, Sorrow doesn't win. Sickness doesn't win. Sin doesn't win. God wins. Jesus wins. Gospel wins. Resurrection wins. So for me, that's been huge.
0: Yeah, and, and, and uh, it's it's extremely encouraging, of course. But let me you know, play. I mean, I I really hate the the phrase devil's advocate, but I don't know what else to call it. But let me just play devil's advocate and be on the other side of the table for a minute and say to you, okay, well, Pastor Lucas, um, that's that's all fine and good, and I believe all that, and uh, I know that's going to happen when I die, and Christ will return, and my body will be resurrected, and I'll be restored and whole again, and And, and, and it sounds wonderful, but that doesn't, I still feel bad. I still feel horrible that my grandfather passed away. I still hurt. I have emotional baggage. Although I believe all what you just said, how do I deal with that at the same time?
1: Well, uh, the sorrows of this life are real sorrows, you know, so, you know, I certainly don't run to the resurrection to undercut or mitigate those sorrows. But Paul says in first Thessalonians four, we sorrow, but as those who have hope, we grieve as those who have hope. We grieve, we have hope. And it's, it's this, it's this grieving hope. It's, it's the contradictions ultimately of, of life in this world that Paul talks about in second Corinthians four. And when he talks about the fact that we, we have treasure and jars uh-huh. the play, you know, we we are afflicted, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted we're not undone, you know, I mean, so it's these contradictions that we experience and that we feel in life in this world uh, That that ultimately drive us to say wait These sorrows if because I believe the gospel these sorrows can't be the final word This grieving cannot be the fi- the emptiness. I feel cannot be the final word. There has to be a final word that's greater it's the resurrection of Jesus. That, that's the final word.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's very encouraging. Um, as you were talking, I was uh, reminded of an event that happened in my own life. Um, uh, it, it's almost too unbelievable to be true, but they say truth is stranger than fiction. Um, but in the same week, my grandfather passed away mm-hmm. and my wife's grandfather passed away. In fact, they passed away 12 hours from each other. My wife's grandfather passed away at noon on a Monday, and my grandfather passed away at 1 a.m. Tuesday morning, so 12, 13 hours difference in time. So in that week, we had two families, two funerals, two services for both sides of the family. The difference was that on my wife's side of the family, her grandfather, as best we know, did not know the Lord, and most of her family didn't. Mm-hmm. They had, they did not have this hope mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Right. They had nothing but pure grief, and that's all they had. Yeah. The other side, my side of the family, my f- grandfather, he loved the Lord. He he was a believer. My family loves the Lord; they're believers. While we grieved, it wasn't a grief that did that didn't have somewhere to go. We right. had a hope on top of it that eased the suffering. If, if that's the right way to put it. Mm-hmm. And I think if, if, unless I misunderstood you, I think that's what you're talking about. You're yes. talking about this idea that you still grieve, you still hurt, you still feel the agony of it because it's real and you'll miss these people. But there's a greater hope on the other end of that that um, we can cling to. And really, no matter what the struggle may be. Um, but uniquely, um, there are struggles in the church that seem to have... Well, greater energy behind them for whatever reason. I mean, you know, if someone gets the, gets the flu and they're sick for a few days, you know, you, you pray that they feel better and, you, you, you know, you're, you're nice to them, whatever the case may be. You give them a call and ask them how they're doing. But when someone uh, dies of a terminal illness or suddenly in a car accident passes away, and that seems to have, for whatever reason, seems to have much greater impact on the congregation and on the pastors that are responsible for them and how do you personally work through that in your own spiritual life and, and what kind of advice might you give pastors to say, Hey, look, these are going to happen to you. If they haven't happened yet, you haven't been in ministry very long.
1: Yeah. I mean, my first, the first funeral I did here was probably it was the biggest funeral we've had since ever in the history of this church. We had over 550 in our sanctuary that only holds about 475. And it was of a, for a 21 year old girl who was apparently, uh, although they were never able to put the case together, was apparently murdered. And, um, um, you know, it was, I was here three months, you know, I, I, you know, it was just kind of mind blowing to kind of have to walk through that. And yet I think most pastors recognize, you know, what I'll say, there is a certain kind of, you're, you're, you're the one entering into their sorrow. You're also the one who's kind of supposed to, if, when everyone else is losing their head, hold it together. Mm. Um, and so. You know, planning the service, working with the family, putting your sermon together, working with all the different people, getting the funeral together, getting to the graveside, doing the graveside. For me, where I, I where my where the weight of it all and the, the heartache of it all happens is after the committal at the graveside and uh, I give the benediction and then I start hugging uh, the folks who are seated in front of me and they're weeping and and I start weeping, too. And Mm. that's that's where I, you know, after I get through hugging all those folks, I usually will separate myself from the group. And I just I'm like, Lord, I hate death. I I have a sense of what Jesus felt when he stood beside Lazarus tomb and wept. He wept both out of sorrow for his friends and anger at death, even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. I I, I get that. And so, Mm. you know, it's. So you have that at the initial moment, but then you, what you also, well, at least for me, what I have is then kind of this lethargy, uh, that, mm. that, you know, it, of my own sense of grieving, certainly not at the level of the family, but, but yet pastorally having grieved, having these folks on my heart, praying for them, you know, it takes a couple of weeks to kind of feel as though, wow. Okay. Um, I feel better. Um, you know, yeah, there's this kind of mispl- almost kind of this grayness that you tend to feel. And what made for me this spring so difficult was to have between mid January, mid March, four large funerals like that, where I'd walked with the people and visited him. One guy, dro- you know, just dropped dead. It was a total shock. Um, one guy who had had pancreatic cancer and I visited him the week before he died. And then these other two, uh, and then once this was all done, we thought we had, <laughs> we're done grieving, you know, to have, a uh, a member of our congregation, their child, adult child walked into a restaurant and shot five people and mm. just kept going on and on and on. And so, you know, it's just, that's where you just kind of like, Lord, really how long, you know, you kind of get the laments of the, of the Psalms at that point, how long, how long, because, uh, it can feel, unremitting at times. And and again, that's where the gospel coming back again and again, um, you know, I do this ministry in union with Christ. Um, This ministry is not dependent upon my performance, but upon the fact that Jesus performed perfectly on the cross and raised from the dead. Um, You know, coming back again to my competencies, not myself, but my competencies given to me by God, by the work of the Holy Spirit. He's made me competent to be a minister of the new covenant. I mean, these are kind of things I come back to over and over and over again for my own heart's sake.
0: Yeah, that's um, that's well said. And something to really keep in mind, I think, too, um, I mean, I'm listening to you talk about this from, and you're, you're talking about it from personal experience and actually living in it and having gone through what it sounds like a difficult last few months and or last year or so. And um, I haven't really had any of those experiences myself, but I know at some point if the Lord um, is gracious to call me full-time into ministry, that that, those are the kinds of things that I will have to wrestle with. And I guess my fear, and and you read about this all the time, where um, ministers um, who are faithful to the gospel who, who enter the ministry and these kinds of things begin to happen around them and they give up yeah. they run they run away w- why what what is the difference between other than the and this is the, the important difference of course is that the Holy Spirit sustains these men during those times but what what things tangibly might ministers do? during these kinds of times to work through that because the the the, the temptation or the, the 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 tendency is to say man this isn't this is too much i can't bear this yeah um yeah
1: statistically i mean back when i worked in the seminary world i mean the association of theological school statistics of the 200 plus seminaries they accredit Suggests that that thirty percent of graduating MDivs leave the ministry in the first five years, and uh, and so that means you know you sit in your classroom you know whether you're a student or a teacher and you look out and if you've got twenty people in the room, you know only fourteen of them are going to be continuing in ministry <laughs> after the first five years, and and so you think about the reasons why that happens. I think one reason is, is that um, that seminarians tend to come to seminary and graduate from seminary with a somewhat idealistic view of what the ministry is. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've once kind of put it this way, you know, that seminarians think that their, their, their days are going to be spent, you know, 13 hours in the study, uh, Greek and Hebrew and Bavink and Calvin and, uh, you know, wisdom in the session room and respect in the counseling room and comfort in the hospital room. And what they find instead is it's actually, uh, four hours a week in the study, <laughs> um, using your English Bible. And if you're lucky Boyce and Keller and, uh, all kinds of confusion <laughs> that happens in a variety of settings. And so, you know, when you come against kind of the, some of those realities that, you know, that seminary can, can never prepare you for. I mean, I've had things happen in three years here that even though I taught at a seminary, we never could have prepared students for, Yeah, uh, it's, it's pretty easy to become discouraged. And, uh, and that's where uh, coming back to those gospel truths, uh, of who I am in Jesus Christ, uh, what, what this gospel of grace is. It's usually uh, one thing that's uh, the most important thing, uh, that has for my ministry undoubtedly has been daily morning worship. Mm, mm-hmm. morning worship, uh, I, sad to say, I mean, I was ordained in 2003, uh, and I, I did not have consistent patterns. I was what I told my students. I was the master of the six week, uh, devotional plan. I try something for six weeks and it would pitter out. I try something else for six weeks and it peter out. And I always felt guilty about it. But, um, Recruiting, when I was a uh, dean at this at this, this seminary in the Midwest, and part of my job was faculty recruiting, I recruited uh, a faculty member who's actually in that presbytery in the Greenville area, and uh, he, he talked to me about you know, how the Lord really dealt with him in a range of areas and in putting into place daily worship, and uh, uh, I think God had me in that position to recruit that man to be convicted along that line uh, and build in practices of daily worship, and uh, that was two thousand seven, and um, and since then, the practice of you know reading through my Bible once a year, using a, a Bible reading plan, and journaling, and daily prayer, and singing psalms and hymns. I, if I was not doing that, there is no way uh, that this ministry would be sustained, much less my marriage or my parenting or anything else about my life. That that by far is the most important thing.
0: It, it's interesting as you were talking about that how the simple means of grace mm. and I say simple I don't mean simple like simple to do <laughs> right but simple in the sense that they're simple on the surface it doesn't take a PhD nothing personal no <laughs> it doesn't take you don't have to have higher education you don't have to be really anybody you're 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 part of God's family these simple means of grace are there for your benefit and God has given them to us and they are simple they're simple in the in, oh, yeah. in, in, in understanding them. Um, how critical they are for every aspect of the Christian life. But even, it seems, in this particular subject we're talking about, how they become even more pointedly obvious, whether you are or are not doing them when those things happen. Because you have nothing in your life then to run to or sustain you in the sense of those practical, practic those practical and and specific daily things that you were just talking about, journaling and spending a consistent and, de- and and deliberate time in prayer, specific and de- deliberate time in scripture. When those crises ha- hit, that it's it's that foundation it, you're built on. That you can you can depend on. You can rely on the, the word of God and prayer and all those matters and it seems so simple to say but how often does do Christians rely on those these things pastors but Christians also you know in the pew rely on these these simple things mm-hmm. um, well
1: ministers tend to think that because we're preparing sermons and bible studies that that counts um and I try I, I you know in the past I tried to tell myself that too <laughs> um but and it, no doubt that it does. I mean, God still uses His word even as we're preparing it, you know, to preach it to others. God does use His word to to deal with us in those as we prepare sermons stuff. But but as you said, I mean, to have a dedicated time uh, for me, a dedicated place, a dedicated period of the day um, where uh, God's feeding me through His word, and I'm responding to that in prayer. Uh, and then journaling different things that occur. I, that too, my journals tend to be Ebenezers of sorts. I'll go back and look through several months to see how God's been dealing with me. It's been very helpful to see patterns of, you know, uh, that are not just spiritual patterns, but I, I tend to think as I look at my journals, that there's kind of seasonal patterns, you know, the weather, whether we want to believe it or not, the weather affects us, you know, the when I lived in St. Louis and, uh, I mean, you know, St. Louis can be so gray in the winter and, uh, you know, it, it it was, you know, that can be challenging, too. And just paying attention to the way God made us and the way God deals with us uh, in all of these ways. And the journaling helps that you can record these things and pay attention to them easier. So,
0: yeah, I've always been a big fan of journaling. Um, I would encourage my children um, as they were growing up to just write something down. I don't care if it was four sentences. It's not the point. It's getting in the habit of doing it because, as you said, you, you, you flip back in the past and you look and you say, wow, I was struggling with that matter and I, I, I can hardly believe it. Four years later, and that's not much of an issue in my life anymore. The Lord's opened up something else for me to deal with, but that's right. the Lord has worked uh, on me in this area and I've had uh, victory and success here. And it's a, it's a great way to see um, how the Lord has been working in our lives and, and dealing with various things. When we're talking about um, particular struggles in the church, um, I already mentioned the issue of suicide. Are there different ways, as a pastor, you may approach the different these these types of issues? Um, I, I'm not even sure how to ask the question. Um, right. You know, the issue of suicide has its own unique aspects attached to it. Sudden death has its own unique aspects attached to it. Death that you know is coming um, because a person's been terminal for two years has its own unique aspects. Or, I mean, do we cookie-cutter this as pastors, or is it something that takes some wisdom in dealing with uniquely?
1: Oh, yeah, it totally takes wisdom. And and those are just the death and dying issues. You know, you have the whole separate—the previous two springs (laughs) that I've been here, uh, we had just— crazy wild church discipline issues
0: you know? mm-hmm.
1: it was just stuff that someday if I ever write my book I
0: mean my goodness there's some things that have just been like oh my word and um, that's death by other means right yeah Ex- mean, being excommunicated
1: well yeah it's uh, it's a, a totally you know where you have people in your office and they'll just look at you and just lie just straight out lie and you know they're lying and they know that you know that they're lying and yet they still do it anyway and you'll tell them brother i i feel like i'm working a jigsaw thousand piece jigsaw puzzle you're giving me 200 pieces i I can't you know you got to tell me more and they just will steadfastly refuse and lie to you i mean so that's a whole separate kettle of fish uh and though you know the church discipline issues they're significant as well in terms of just pastoral struggle and and kind of being emotionally draining because you, you you can see where this train's going. Either it's a marriage that, uh, since I've been here, we've had 14 different situations that were on the edge of divorce and end up in divorce, uh, pull back from the brink of divorce. Um, and you, you know, you, I mean, you know where this train's going. You know about the, mm. the hurt children. You know the effects long term on the children and their marriages. And you know, you know the the, the calloused over hearts. You know that. More than likely, one partner or the other will leave the church, probably leave going to church, period. Um, and so leave being under the ministry of the word, which is a big hope for, you know, it is the means of salvation. Uh, and just all kinds of net effects that flow out of that. And you just grieve and weep. I mean, I'll have people leave my office and just go in my back study back here and just fall down on the ground and say, Lord, please arrest them. Please do not let them go down this way. And, you know, and sometimes God does, he lets, and it's just heartbreaking to see people go down that pathway as a pastor. You're just like, uh, and then to have to work through processes of church discipline and then they're unresponsive and all the things that go with that. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's very, very challenging. So yeah, I mean, there, there are different things that come up in the life of the ministry that, you know, you have different tools in the toolbox. There's no two ways about it. And church discipline is uh, you know, the, the process that the PCA book of church order lays out for church discipline is an important tool in the toolbox.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, you know, it's not necessarily a tool that I pull out first, but a lot of times it is a tool that will pull out, um, especially if the individual, well, if the is <laughs> repentant, um, I very much want them before the session to confess and to be admonished and to go through this process. If they're not repentant, then we have another set of tools in that toolbox to use. Um, but it's not, to be punitive at all it's because we love them and we right. we long for them to be restored and we know that that you know their profession of being loved by christ is at stake here and that christ would love them this way yeah. i mean hebrews 12 says that god disciplines you as sons it's because of that indicative relationship that we have by virtue of our union with christ we're sons of god that god disciplines us and so so that you know we try to as we talk, deal with folks root these things in the gospel uh, but man, folks don't necessarily want to hear it or deal with it. And so it comes up a lot in preaching too. I remind our people, you know, the reason we, we do these things is because we love you. We pursue you, you know? So these are kind of some of the tools that we use.
0: Yeah, it's good. And, you know, as you were talking about discipline and whatnot, I was a somewhat wayward teenager. Um, the Lord rescued from, the, um, well, a mess and, um, you know, my church didn't discipline me. They didn't. They didn't do those kinds of things. And um, and and they probably should have. Uh, and it, it, it may have changed the course and direction, but they never gave that a chance um, to actually work because it works. Discipline works. It. it I've seen it work. Um, it brings people. It may take years, but it brings them back to a place where they have to recognize and realize. That you know, I'm not right with the Lord. I'm, my, my, I, have, I have issues to deal with. I have to need to confess sin. I need to repent of this behavior, um, and it works. And it's because it's done in a loving way, because that's the end goal, right? Of discipline is to restore them, to bring them in right relationship, to have them repent of their sins, so that they can be numbered amongst the fellowship. I mean, that's and that's a joyful thing. And I know we're talking about struggles, but there's not just struggles in the pastoral ministry. Um, sure. I'm certain that you could tell a, a thousand stories of, of joyous situations that may have started out bad but ended up very good. Oh, right. and And uh, other types of things like marrying couples, young couples starting out in marriage for the uh, – uh, uh, starting out their lives as a married couple and marrying them, and it's a joyful thing. Um, so we don't want to give the impression that the pastoral life is uh, – you know, one big somber experience that has no happiness whatsoever. Um, but I mean, if you tell me that's the way it is, I can quit now. I'm only in my first year seminary and I can go do something else. But, um,
1: one of the, one of the things though, that does happen is when the volume and velocity of challenges come, uh, and you know, it seems like since I've, at least in this place, springs have been harder than falls. Um, the volume and velocity of things we've dealt with, uh, has been much, much higher in the springs. And, you know, you, you start to get, at least at me, I start to get a little numb and, you know, it's, I mean, I remember um, one spring where I had a series of just wild discipline things that were going on where people, you know, discover people are living together or, you know, wanting to join the church, but they're living together. And we, we had this particularly horrible case about a marriage and all these other things. And then a couple calls me and I'm like they say they want to come and talk to me. I was like, you know, they're not, they're dating. You know, they've, they've been dating for a while. And I, I said, sure. Great. Love to talk to you and hang up the phone. And the first thing that's out of my mouth is that she's pregnant. I know she's pregnant. You know, he, he didn't say that, but I know that's what it's going to be. And they come in my office and lo and behold, they want me to marry them. You know, I, my, my, my brain had already gone down this road because I had dealt with so much bleh that I you know, couldn't see the joy. I was expecting bad news in some ways. And again, it was a place. It was very convicting, but it was a place again where the gospel had to come and say, "Wait a second, <laughs> you know, don't don't be so overwhelmed by, uh, by the, the the brokenness of your jar of clay, if you will, mm. that
0: that you miss the treasure." Uh, yeah, how do you how do you guard? Um, it's interesting that you said that. How do you guard uh, against cynicism well, in the pastoral office? I mean, w- one big
1: part is to, you know, it's a wonderful thing not to do this thing by myself. Uh, my staff is great at reminding me that, <laughs> that there's there's good things going on. Um, you know, and and truth be told, I mean, the Lord has been very gracious to us here at First Press Hattiesburg. I mean, we've, we've had 160 people join over three years. I've done 65 mm-hmm. baptisms. I mean, we've uh, we've had adult conversions since I've been here. I mean, the Lord has been very kind to us. Um And so, you know, and this year, you know, it's been the same. It's, you know, instead of last year we had big waves of people come. This year it's been a trickle, but we've already had 25 folks join through, you know, first of May, and but it's been a trickle, which has been very interesting to see how God's been doing all of this. And uh, and that's where, you know, remind, you know, I've got a wonderful group of officers. I've got a great group of officers that are coming. And so it's paying attention. I think the biggest thing is to be able to step back and pay attention to, you know, Lord, you're at work. Uh, And particularly, I mean, when the Lord meets us in corporate worship, that's, I mean, this past Sunday, it was, I I very much felt the unction of of the power of the Holy Spirit in preaching. And that was, our people very much responded. I mean, the Lord was very much present, very much at work. Uh, and I was hugely encouraged because it's been a weird vibe through some of our worship services and not quite knowing where our people are at. But the Lord just came with power on Sunday. And uh, so it was just, you know, those are the things I have to step back and pay attention to and say, again, it's coming back to those kind of core biblical things of, Lord, this is your ministry, not my ministry. <laughs> I'm doing this ministry in union with Christ. You know, That's right. coming again and again um, to those rock solid the gospel is not simply something that saves me the, the gospel the gospel is an everyday gospel and it and it it's the warp and woof of my life which means it has to be and it is the warp and woof of the ministry uh, uh, and so because of that I live out of the that reality that uh, in reality by virtue of union with Christ, you know, certain imperatives play out. I have pastoral imperatives. You know, I love the people. I pray. I preach. I counsel. So and so meet with our staff. Da 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 da. But but it all flows out of the indicative of union with Christ.
0: Yeah, and um, I, mean, I I still love the the fact that, and you've you've met, made mention of this a few times already, um, how you can talk to those men um, that are on your on your session and you can share some of these concerns. So you, you know, you're not out there by yourself. It's not a Lone Ranger enterprise. Um, I, I mean, I love being Presbyterian for that reason. Um, there's many other reasons, but that's one of them that I really, um, am, am very thankful for. Um, I, I don't have to be the King. I don't have to be the, the, the head honcho in the building. I don't have to try to figure all this stuff out either. Um, yeah, I, if I'm at a loss, I, I've got plenty of resources. Um, just a quick question as we come kind of come to the end of the conversation. What um, when pastors are struggling with various issues, whatever they may be, whether it's church discipline, uh, whether it's death in the church, whether it's you know whatever it is, plethora of uh, plethora of different issues. What role does a pastor's wife play in? keeping uh, her husband from going insane
1: (laughs) (laughs) well my wife i mean i can only speak for my wife Uh, my wife is my What what role should a wife play (laughs) well yeah i mean in the south i mean as 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 you're becoming aware being in greenville i mean there's a different set of expectations that attach to pastor's wives it seems um Mm -hmm. That, you know, thankfully our congregation is just, you know, from the very get go. I mean, even as we were going through the candiding process, they fell in love with my wife and, and, and my wife is, she's an extrovert. She's very energetic. Um, she's, a, she's always been a leader ever since we've been in college. So, um, but my Sarah's role in his, she is just, the Lord has given her. I, she is a tremendous encouragement, uh, to me personally, um, I'm not, I have a pretty high view of confidentiality, so she's typically the last one to know about a range of things, and yet she has a good sense of me emotionally, uh, and so she knows when I'm bearing things, and she just will remind me, you know, both she loves me, but more importantly, God loves me. She reminds me of fundamental gospel truths, um, you know, so for, in that regard, it's, it's really huge, and then Sarah has her own ministry if you will uh, the same ministry that any godly woman in our congregation would have of of loving people so i mean mm. you know she'll go and visit people in the hospital just like our other people do and you know she'll bring meals just like our people do and and so she's had that role in the life of our church as well and it's been tremendous
0: yeah i think w- one of the things you said that i think is really important for spe- for any wife not just pastors wives i know we're we're that's somewhat the focus of the conversation but any wife of a of a of a christian man and every christian man should desire this in a wife is this a, this aspect of encouragement um you know my my wife at times she'll sense that you know the studies and the things that are going on around the school and the various responsibilities i have and I tend to get weighed down. I, I take things very hard sometimes. And she'll sense that, as you were saying, it your wife seems to have a good connection with where you are emotionally. And my wife is, definitely does. And she'll do little things. Um, for, you know – using the modern technology she'll fire a text message off to me at some at some point during the day and say look i've you know i've, I've prayed for you today uh, the lord loves you um i was thinking about you i was reading this first and i was thinking about you and it's it's it, it doesn't have to be long it doesn't have to be involved it doesn't have to be you know a 12 page letter but those kinds of things are very helpful she That's may not it. know the specific details of what's going on and as you indicated as a pastor you can't always talk about those specific details even with your wife yeah. um and you have to be careful and, but they get a sense of when you're really feeling the weight. And, uh, I, I think that's an invaluable asset to have in any pastoral ministry. Um, I can't imagine going into the pastoral ministry without a wife. Um, Absolutely. So I know single guys do it, but, um, I, God didn't wear me that way. So, um, <laughs> um, and it appears that he didn't wear a lot of men that way. So, uh, yeah. But anyway, that's good. In closing, uh, Dr. Lucas, if, if you had a room full of a thousand pastors and you were going to give a lecture on how to work through pastoral, struggles in the pastoral ministry, specifically, whatever that struggle may be, um, and you had to give this lecture in just a few minutes— I know, we're Presbyterians. That's impossible. You can't do a lecture in a few minutes. That's got to be at least 45 minutes and three points, right? Well, if you had you to go. give them one nugget of counsel to how to work through whatever struggle it may be, that they don't, you wouldn't even need to know what it is, what would you tell them? Run to Jesus.
1: Uh, I mean, that would be my simple—it's one of our things that we talk a lot about here is, you know, uh, at the end of the day, um, when you boil things down, the problem's always sin, the answer's always Jesus— uh, doesn't mean that our pastoral struggles draw from sin, but whatever the struggle is, whatever the problem is that we face, the answer is running to Jesus. Uh, running to Jesus by using his means. so word, prayer, corporate worship, sacraments in the corporate worship. I mean all are powerful gifts that God has given us. They're, our catechism says they are effectual means of our salvation. Mm. Um, and you know so running to Christ in those ways, uh, running to Christ and the fellowship of the saints. Don't don't absent yourself from the life of the church, but be, you know, connected to the life of the church. Um, you know, so running to Jesus means being part uh, and submissive to Christ's court, if you will. The brothers that God's put you together with in ministry. I mean, all of those things are involved in running to Jesus. But at the end of the day, it's it's really is running to Jesus. That that is the central. Central advice or central counsel I'd give.
0: Yeah, and, and that's well said. And I and I think if we would only do that, if I would only do that during those difficulties, whatever they may be, um, consistently, regularly, often. Why, why is it always my fifth thought to do that to pray? It's always my ninth thought. It's not my first thought. My first thought is to try to solve it, try to work it out, yeah. you know, and then realize I, I really can't. And it's my ninth thought down the road. Well, you know, maybe I need to stop and just pray about this matter and um, and, and let the Lord be the Lord. And um, that's that, you know, it's easy to say. Um, it's a different thing to do it. Um, real quick, do you have any resources that you might be able to suggest to people that um, either a, uh, you know, our pastors in the ministry who who wrestle with some of these matters or maybe just they're just, you know, they they, they members of the church and they're interested in more information.
1: Yeah, the the single most helpful book that I've read um, that deals with, if you will, dark emotions of the heart as we go through different struggles is Dan Allender and Tremper Longman's book, The Cry of the Soul. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a very powerful look at a a number of psalms of lament. Uh, And um, I've taught that as Bible studies. I've done it on Wednesday nights. Um, and it, it inevitably has proven to be very, very helpful for people. Uh, and it's, it's a book that I, I will read periodically for my own heart's sake. Um, a, a book that is really useful for pastors, particularly in the issue of, of, of how to deal with hearts, hard, hard deaths, hard and challenging funeral kind of things. Brian Chapel just edited a book called The Hardest Sermons You'll Ever Have to Preach. Uh, that Zondervan just published, uh, last year, I believe. And it's a collection of sermons dealing with the kinds of things, you know, uh, prominent individual as cancer, suicide, miscarriage, you know, how do you, it gives you models and also the pastoral rationale behind those sermonic models mm. of, of how to preach in those situations. To me, that that's been a very valuable, valuable resource. Um, uh, you know, another thing for me that's been very helpful in just continuing to remind myself of that I'm, I'm not alone in these things is to read ministerial biography. Uh, mm. Right now I'm reading uh, Spurgeon's two-volume autobiography, uh, and uh, which is very valuable. And then, you know, um, Dalimore's little biography of Spurgeon, uh, that was what got me on back onto the big two-volume autobiography. Uh, just ministerial biography helps remind you that, oh, wait, there are other brothers who've dealt with these things and they've run to Jesus too. And uh, so those are some things that come to immediately to mind.
0: Well, that's good. And I will make these resources available on our website. um, So people who are listening to this they may be driving they may be mowing their lawn they may be, I don't know what they're doing when they listen to the podcast um, I've heard all kinds of interesting things that people do when they listen to podcasts but uh, some jog though I don't know why but uh, anyway um, uh, anyway I will make this available on the website so those who are doing those things um, will be able to access them at a later date um, as they're able uh, dr. Lucas it's been great talking with you about this subject it's um, as we said off air, I probably we, w- we definitely won't get to the end of it. Um, uh, it's a lifelong process of working through some of these matters. I'm sure you'd agree with that. And um, but I've appreciated the conversation and your candidness and your willingness to talk to me about this. I think this will be helpful for people as they listen to this um, going forward. Well, I appreciate you having me, William. It's been a joy to talk with you. Great. Thank you. Uh, We've been talking with Dr. Sean Lucas. Uh, He is the senior minister of First Presbyterian Church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. It's a PCA congregation. And we've been talking with him about uh, pastoral struggles, struggles in the ministry. And and we've been talking about some tangential issues as well in relationship to that. But I think um, what we heard most clearly in this conversation is that, you know, regardless of whatever the struggle may be, Christ is our hope. And the Christian hope is the resurrection that we will eventually enjoy. Um, Death is not our victor. It doesn't own us. And as God's people, we can hold on to that. Because of Christ's work on the cross and in his resurrection, he has guaranteed, guaranteed our salvation, our resurrection. And uh, there's really no greater hope than that. And uh, those without that hope um, are truly people to be pitied. And, um, so we've heard some great things on this subject, some, some great practical suggestions as to how to maintain those means of grace to keep one from despair and despondency and, uh, some other good resources as well to go along with this. So we hope that you've enjoyed this discussion, um, very practical nature and, um, and, uh, give you an idea of what's coming up, uh, Friday this week. As a matter of fact, I'll be talking with Andy Webb. Um, he's a pastor of, a PCA congregation in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and we'll be talking with him about a church topic on church history. It's the, the actual topic that he brought at the Greenville Seminary Theology Conference uh, back in March, so we'll be speaking with him on his lecture and some uh, issues related to it. So stay tuned. Uh, if you want more information, you can find out all you need to know about Greenville Seminary. You can go to uh, gpts.edu, and if you want to contact me specifically, you can write me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu so until Friday when I speak with Andy Webb we do thank everybody for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope the weekly podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and God bless